the Rathbones Inspired Minds podcast series. Hello and welcome to the Rathbones Inspired Minds podcast series. I'm Daniel Norcross. In each episode, acclaimed writers, scientists and entrepreneurs reveal what inspires them. And today, I'm delighted to say I am joined by a very good colleague, very good friend of mine, the first black woman to play cricket for England, but she's way more than that. She's an administrator, a drummer, a thinker, a writer, a podcaster, and a broadcaster. Welcome aboard, Ebony Rainford-Brent. Hello, Dan. Thanks for having me. Always good to be with you. It's going to be fun, I'm sure. Well, it should be fun. It should be fun because I've got you, (laughs) and you are always fun. You're basically described as the most fun voice in the Test Match Special commentary box. But this is a podcast about inspiration. Mm. We're going to get on to how you inspire other people in the uh, course of the next half an hour or so. But I ask everybody this. I ask them what inspiration means. What is inspiration as far as you're concerned? I think it's more for me a feeling. It's like if I get excited about something then all of a sudden I just become passionate about it, excited to realise it, be around people who feel the same sort of emotion. So that could be anything from, you know, in the work world, it could be watching an Ashes Test match and I just feel inspired watching someone go about their business, like a Stuart Broad going on a charge, I feel inspired in that moment. Or it could be coaching with a young child in cricket and seeing them develop and their excitement kind of feeds over to me. So I think for me, everything's about that feeling and that emotion that gets me drawn in. And the minute I feel that and it's like you can tap into it, then all of a sudden I then go into overdrive of just maybe and I'm gluttonous to an extent. I want more and more and I want others around it to feel that same thing. And I think, um, you know, in life without inspiration and hope and drive and positivity, I don't think I would enjoy it as much. And I can be inspired even when I'm feeling low. So it's not something that you have to live this sort of perfect life. But as long as I could always have a bit of inspiration, I think I'll always be happy, enjoy the excitement of life. Do you abandon certain things because of a lack of inspiration? You've had such a varied life and career that you're a cricketer for the first part of your life and career. And you retired from that pretty early, 2010, so you would have been, what, 27 or so at the time. Was that because you'd lost the inspiration? It's a really good question. I think I was more weighing up real life. So I actually think maybe a bit like you, Dan, I've been avoiding a real job all my life. So when I was at university, I tried to stretch it out as long as possible by being an athlete. I was enjoying the athlete side of it, but I started realizing maybe I needed to think about real life and actually the um, getting job and paying off debts that had accumulated to be an athlete and all these sort of things. So it was partly weighing up, even though I'll enjoy this, we'd kind of peaked and, you know, you know more than others, but as part of a squad that won a couple of World Cups and an Ashes and we'd peaked as a squad. I hadn't peaked as a player, but we peaked it as a squad. And I just thought, if I keep chasing this kind of excitement, that's great, but I'm going to also turn around with a life with no real career or no... So I was having to, for the first time, actually, make one of those decisions where I couldn't just chase the joy and I was actually thinking about sort of crafting a a real life. Um, So I think that's why I I stepped back from playing at that age, but then got lucky that (laughs) I ended up walking into another amazing career. So yeah, I think it was one of those moments of just realising you can't always just chase the excitement. You have to think about reality at the same time. We have to explain to listeners of this podcast who may not be au fait with either cricket or indeed women's sport that your timescale for playing sport, you're coming up to a rather large birthday shortly. Shh. Uh, yeah, yeah, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll cut that bit out. But, <laughs> but you're of a certain age that meant that when you were playing sport, women's sport was not professional. Mm. 
you were doing that, was that for love? I mean, because it, it, there was no money in it at all. There were no contracts for women cricketers until when into the middle of the 2010s. So you retired sort of five years before people were getting paid. What was it that kept you playing? Yeah, there's so many things. I love people and I love like working with people towards a goal. I'm the sort of person as well, I'm the first to the party and the last to leave. So being part of a squad where everyone was just on this mission, like all we cared about was, you know, and maybe in some ways it was single track, single minded, but we just cared about winning World Cups and performance and being the best you can. And so being in a culture, an environment where you're around others and you all have that excitement I talked about that word of excitement and inspiration to be the best you can it was so addictive and I think it's quite different to any sort of even work world I've been in it's just so single focused on one goal one mission and how you all play your part so I think from a young age I got into team sport and loved that feeling of being around others and then as you kind of go up and up the chain from sort of grassroots cricket to then sort of got into junior Surrey and junior England I think I got addicted to one, that kind of feeling of you developing yourself and trying to be the best you can. And then also sort of surprising yourself. Some days you'd have amazing days and then some days you'd have awful days. And then some days you feel awful, but you perform well. And then some days you feel great and you perform awful. And I just remember kind of just always being excited to find out like, what could I achieve? What could our team achieve? So I think there's just something really unique about elite sport you know in some ways we are quite single-minded I look back at that person who was an athlete and how who I am now and I'm much more rounded and think of others more in terms of just sort of wider life but it's just a unique experience that I loved and I was obsessed with and I, I think as well you know like there was a lot of sacrifices so you mentioned about not having a huge amount of money I, I didn't come from wealth at all so it's quite hard all the way through the journey from mum being a single parent mum and we were getting trains and buses and stuff like that from like 5 a.m at sort of 14 15 years old around the country really and coaches and just trying to make our way around and so I think I got into a habit of accepting it being a difficult thing to fulfill your dream I didn't actually see it as that hard. So then when I went to university and I'm getting up at 5am to do lectures and fit in training and do a, a job around all of it, it just became a way of being just it being what you do, you sacrifice for something that you love and you're passionate about. So, you know, I missed out on the good old days, the girls are getting uh, paid quite nicely now 300,000 for three weeks work for some players, where you know, I was in an era we did get, you know, maybe got £10,000 or so. I think it was like um, government support and lottery funding to support athletes at the time. But that was for the year. And, you know, it really didn't financially like cut the overall picture, but it gave enough of a lifeline to follow the dream. So, yeah, I, I would say just power through for something that you're really passionate about. Well, one of the words that came up there, which I want to come back to is team, because you do a lot of things in your life in teams hmm. and you started obviously doing that when you're playing cricket and cricket's an unusual game because it's a, an individual game in which you need to maximize the best of your ability either as a batter or a bowler you're always being measured against other people in your team very very clinically and brutally in, in some cases in terms of runs you get and wickets you take but the other part of it is that you're a team that's very closely bonded because you'll go away for long periods of time together um, you'll spend an enormous amount of time in each other's company. And you've continued in your life after cricket as being part of teams. Is that where you gather 
your most inspiration in that sort of communal place? Because, you know, you think about other sports. Sports are very, very different. Like a tennis player or a golfer, they might be inspired by another individual, but they've got to do an awful lot of the motivation themselves. But you have always worked in that kind of rather collegiate environment. That's what's brought the best out of you. Yeah, I think, I mean, the good thing about self-awareness and doing like tests and stuff, I remember doing a personality test. I was on the Surrey Academy, so I was the only female around a lot of the male players that have gone on to play for England. And um, the test came up that I was like 99.9% of an extrovert. Most people like you as well, Dan, because I know we're not exactly not people people, but I think that I genuinely, you know, it's where you get your energy from, isn't it? And you meet introverts who can be social, but then when they need to refuel, they go inward. I get so much fuel being around people. Um, I've had to learn to sometimes tone it down actually in teams because you can be overbearing if you're always up for let's go hang out. And they've just, we've just been together for like 10 hours today. Do you not want to have five minutes on your own? So I, I've been an extreme extrovert all my life. I've, I've loved meeting new people. I've loved learning about people as well, actually. I, I think actually that's the thing that's the most fun is like the curiosity of what drives others and how people work together and why we work together. I've always kind of read a lot into psychology and mindset. And and so I think being around a team, it's not sometimes just like how I feel. It's like enjoying learning about others, what makes them tick, what makes them drive, where their backgrounds are. And often you end up finding two people who are completely different on paper, have so many things in common when you kind of get into who you are, you know, like the values of what brings me and you together. We're from different worlds to an extent, but we also connect really well because once we get into those long chats, which we've had over a glass of wine or two, you know, you learn more about that person. So I think I get just really excited about people. And I think I've never been able to shake that. I've calmed down a bit in terms of I do now have quiet time or like try and reflect and take time out. But being around people is really for me where life is at. It's like teams working together, shared goals and also shared failure when it goes wrong and it's not great. Actually, you want to be around people who boost you. So um, people for me is kind of everything. That extreme extrovert has just been my DNA and makeup from day one. I mean, you are a ludicrously talented human being who throws her hand at a variety of different things. I remember there was a time when you bored me rigid about golf for about a year and a half. (laughs) You got pretty good at that. But as you were talking, I was thinking about, you know, again, that coming back to this sort of communal enterprise, drumming. You're you're a really great drummer. I mean, I know you're too modest to say it, but you're a fantastic drummer. Thank you. And the drummer is like, without the band, the drummer is nothing. You you, you do get drum solos. I know you do, but no one's going to go and listen to an hour and a half of a drummer. It's all about the drummer. But the band is rubbish without the drummer. (laughs) So, you know, I mean, like this is like the same thing happening over again. Cricket is a bit like that. Hmm. And then we're going to come on to another part of your life shortly, perhaps the most recent part of it. But is that something, you know, that has just followed you around everywhere? Do you never want to go away and do something solitary we talk on this podcast to a lot of different types of people like writers and historians and whatnot but you are always in the thick of it whenever you're doing something so I think now as I've got a bit older I force myself if I'm being honest I love being in and around people but equally as I've got more responsibility on teams and leading I, I have to force myself to think uh, more strategically step back and um I wouldn't say that comes as naturally. I like thinking strategically, but thinking about others and how things are structured. So 
I remember the first time I tried this, <laughs> I went away, booked myself two days away. And then about 20 minutes in, I called all my mates and I was like, right, where's the party at? And drove straight back from the countryside home. So it didn't work the first time. But over time, like I've started getting into going away to the mountains. I'm going away actually just before Christmas to the lakes for a couple of days. And I don't think I've got more than two days. But what I do is sort of set myself like big questions about life and myself and others and think wider so that um, just to have that reflective process. I think it's important for all of us to take time out and um, just carve out a bit of space. I wasn't naturally good at giving myself space and I've had to sort of carve it in. So I kind of structure my day now actually where I start with tea, diary, couple of key questions um, that I need to reflect on. And then I will just embed that. And then I also just try and embed a little bit of time away. And it's the same in business, isn't it? You know, we're starting in the new year with some of the team and the work that we're doing. And I've just said, look, we all need to get everybody together. And, you know, you do it, don't you? You have to sort of step, pause and reflect. So it's not natural. And it's not enjoyable, actually, but then kind of, I think COVID, actually, I don't know if you found that, but COVID was the first time I really put a pause on life. And it's it's just changed the dynamic of having that time to really reflect. So um, forced, but I, I'm starting to do it more. Well, look, since you've raised the spectre of what you have to do now, which is both inspirational to other people, but also a massive gear change, because now you are, as you've alluded to, you're a leader. You've founded something called the ACE program, the Afro-Caribbean Engagement Program, alongside Surrey County Cricket Club, which you started in 2020, with the purpose of engaging the black British community in cricket. But it's become way different from that, hasn't it? It, it started as an idea. Mm. And I remember you talking about it in a pub, actually, in, near the Oval, mm. and then say that you got the funding and it was going to happen, and you described what it was. But it's become much, much bigger than that. And you're having to lead that. How is that? Because you weren't a leader when you were a player. <laughs> you, were, you were the cheeky one. You were, you were the one that were arriving late or taking other players in the team like Ishigur and making them go astray and getting in trouble with the coaches. But now you're the person who's delivering that leadership. I would say I'm a reluctant leader as well. And as you know, I, I, like I said, I want to be life and soul of the party. I want to be just enjoy myself and, and sometimes not thinking about others and their emotions and being responsible for it. And I remember the first time I stepped into leadership, I captained Surrey women towards the end of my career. And I just didn't have a clue about thinking about how everybody just trying to get them in alignment. And I remember trying to give like team speeches and I was too much of like a joker and the girls just kind of were like, what is this? You're not really like serious. You're not leading from the front. And I found that a difficult experience because, you know, I maybe was given the leadership role because at that time I was performing well and, you know, playing national. Uh, but I don't think I was a natural leader. Over time, so I've worked in a lot of different roles and what starts to happen for me, and I think this is what what's actually forced me into being a leader, is there's things I see that I want to be done differently. You know, I've worked with charities like the Taverners and Charts to Shine and other places. And from a young age, from my own experience, I go, I love what we're doing, say, with these kids, but can we do it better? Can we do it differently? So then you start bringing the ideas to the front and the people go, okay, over to you. And then you're like, okay, great, but who's going to do it? And I think I've got to the point in life where there are things I want and there's no point me sort of waiting for others. Um, if you suggest the ideas you have to execute. And I think one of the best lessons in my life, I'll talk about an amazing guy called Richard Gould, who's now the chief exec at ECB, but it was our time at Surrey. That's the English Cricket Board. 
English cricket board. Yeah. So he's kind of runs that and he was um, chief exec at Surrey at the time. And I was given this role director of women's cricket because I proposed three ideas about how I saw women's sport and women's cricket evolving, commercial opportunities, how we could increase the performance. And they were like, okay, over to you. And I think I was battling with understanding how to pull in the team, the marketing team, the commercial team. I was struggling and I went in to have a bit of a moan. I remember he said, your title is director, learn how to direct. (laughs) Great. But in a positive way, he wasn't being difficult. He was just like, I think you have to understand how to lead and your job is to lead. That was like a real turning point for me of not just having the ideas and not just kind of putting them on paper, but I had to get my head around how to get people on board with a mission, how to track it and measure what your impact is, all the things that go into leading. And, and I would say I've been reluctant in it because it's a lot of responsibility. You then have to think about a lot. But equally, what I'm starting to see is there's ideas like the ACE program, which I've wanted to see happen for a long time. And to do that, you had to go and raise the money to do that. You had to go and build the program, get the right team in. Now we're in six cities. We had to work out how we're going to get our team to roll out your culture across not just one environment, but six environments and then into schools and communities all around the country. So it's something that I have to work at and attention to detail sometimes is not ideal because I wouldn't say that's my skill set. And you have to then go, right, who in the team can take up what I can't do and find the right people in the team. So I've had to learn a lot. And I think I was given an opportunity early on to execute ideas. And now I'm just, I suppose, starting to find my feet with that. Well, you alluded earlier on to your upbringing and how you weren't brought up with an awful lot of money. You probably weren't brought up with the expectation of leadership. Do do you think having watched a lot of leaders now, Hmm. and you get a lot of that in sport, but you're getting a lot of it in administration, that people aren't born leaders. Mm. They're sort of encouraged to be leaders because of their upbringing, because of their education, because of what the expectation is on, let's say, for example, a public school educated white man, which are very different expectations from the ones that would have been on you. And do you think, therefore, that you know, you're slightly disbenefited from the kickoff? So you're having to kind of learn things that maybe you always had, but there was no expectation of you doing it. Yeah, I think one of the biggest turning points for me in life was like starting to believe in your values. I think where I came from, in some ways, you know, I had a good schooling environment, but we were sort of single parent family. It had a challenging time at home and and stuff like that. And sport was my outlet. When I went into the world of cricket, being like kind of a working class girl, different background, and then some of the challenges I found sort of trying to immerse myself into a world which wasn't quite like my home world. It was quite different. I don't think I saw value in myself as someone who could lead. And in some ways, you know, the jovial, jokey person was maybe partly that as well, partly insecurity of, you know, do I belong here? Uh, And then if you're then getting reinforced sometimes with your identity is you're not, you know, you don't see black women running national sports like cricket. You don't see any in the boardroom. You don't see any. So I think I kind of just had this subconscious belief that I didn't really have value in that space. And it's kind of, again, where this is where people become, I think, really important in your journey. You know, Richard Thompson, who's an amazing guy who's been chair at Surrey County Cricket Club and the ECB. I remember him at a a young point of my career when I was sort of just finishing playing sort of said to me, you've got a lot of value to offer, like start to believe in it. And and it's people around me. I've had so many mentors and supporters who actually start to feel the value. And I think that's what happens for a lot of people is if you don't see yourself 
represented in a role. And then if you don't necessarily have that self-belief, it can be hard to know you can lead or you can have a voice or you can speak up or can change things. You know, it takes a bit, but I believe so many people have it. It's just kind of almost, I think few things is believing you have an ownership, like a right to speak up or change things or, or have an impact. I believe leading from authenticity is really important. So, you know, are you in touch with yourself? And then also a vision, like what do you want to see happen going forward? And I think if you can find all of those things, um, you know, you can really make an impact. But I, I was a reluctant leader because I just didn't see anyone that looked like me, didn't believe it. The environment I was on, you, you're the only one of your kind, really. And you're thinking, well, maybe I'm not going to be valued or listened to. So I really believe that leaders are everywhere. I try and encourage in every team that we work in as well, that please speak up. Everyone is valued. Your ideas are most probably more important than the people at the top because you see more, you're exposed to more, and you actually want healthy environments where everybody is leading and can kind of feel that space to grow. So yeah, it's um, it's a long journey. I still feel like I've got a long way to learn, but I'm starting to see that you can offer value and make a difference. Well, inspiration, which is part of the subject of this podcast, is seen sometimes as like that eureka moment, that moment which makes you think creatively, makes you think about what you can achieve. Would it be safe to say that now having become more comfortable with leadership, mm. and you may say you're a reluctant leader, but you are now leading a program that is absolutely mushroomed. It's exploded in the last three years. Does the fact that you are a leader provide you with more inspirational ideas? Because you're now in a position to be able to make things happen. In a way, you know, when you first started, if you were un unaware of the power of leadership because you weren't one, maybe lots of inspirations didn't come to you. Mm. But now, it's not like you can click your fingers and make something happen, but you do now have power. Mm. I think there's two sides. There's, um, there's inspiration, then I'll say I am competitive as well. So I grew up with three older brothers, as you can imagine, trying to play football in a household with three boys, you're like putting goal, ball smashed at you. And so you had to kind of like fight for everything. And um, I would say now I'm getting into this position of leadership um, and I am inspired and I'm quite competitive. Um, and I think what I mean by competitive, so the program that we have is trying to get basically kids that you wouldn't normally see, black British population, but also kids from working class backgrounds into elite positions in cricket. So all the way from finding young kids that have never tried cricket before into the county pathway and our academies transition about 20% at the moment. I get really competitive about those numbers and think people have said this stuff couldn't be done. As in, you know, the narrative in, in a lot of our game has been that the community are not interested in cricket. They've gone to football. There's all these sort of narratives that have caused, I say, 20 years of neglect of communities and not putting in enough infrastructure to support transition for young people. So I think one is like, I get excited about what can be achieved, but the other is like, I'm going, if we can turn things around and kind of prove and show it is possible and young people from these communities can be valued and valuable to our game, I get quite like also a little bit fired up. So I think the two together work hand in hand. You've got to be careful not to have an ego. And I think you learned that through sport is like, there's a line, there's enough drive, but also to not get caught in your own hype. And it's good to have good people around you also sort of check you and make sure where you're at. But I, I do think having a sense of like enjoying 
that slightly proving people wrong and being able to think forward and now being in a position with a voice where you can make change is quite cool. So who knows where I'll be in the next few years, Dan. Uh, We can talk about plans in the pub maybe again and uh, we'll see. But yeah, I think my vision is getting bigger, which is scary because also it means more effort, more work, more growing, but um, it could be fun. You say more work, but one of the genuinely most inspirational things about you for me, because I am a man who is desperate for a good work-life balance. And by that, I mean (laughs) a lot of life. More balance than work. (laughs) More more balance, absolutely more balance than work. And that's how it should be, shouldn't it, in an ideal world. But you managed to do that quite effortlessly. We hang around in broadcasting cricket with some people who do not stop. They are in hotel rooms 280 days of the year. Every time I turn the TV on, I'm not going to name them, but you know who they are. (laughs) And you go, this game of cricket couldn't happen unless he was on it. He's always on it. And I kind of, I used to think when I first started a a bit of jealousy, you know, I'd, I'd love to have all that work. And now I think, oh, crikey, how exhausting. You have so many different things going on, but you massively prioritize time for yourself. Why do you do that, I guess? And how do you do that? So it's a really deep question and actually I'll give you quite a deep answer because it sounds like, I mean, just for people who don't know me, I'm basically fitting in, wake surfing, basically I've got a bucket list of 83 things and I've knocked off like 40 and I'm always like camper vanning across somewhere or I'm doing some adventure. But the honest answer is why is because of my earliest impact story, I think, which you know, but I lost my brother when I was five to knife crime and it was quite full on experience that suffering such a sharp loss of somebody and then thinking that he was so young and didn't get to live, it just sits with me. And I think for a long time, in some ways I had fear of death, like I felt like life could be taken away tomorrow. And I just live with that. So because of that, and I've managed to sort of calm myself a bit, but I still always just know that, yes, I'm planning for 10 years time or, you know, everyone wants to build their pension or whatever, you know, sensible things. But equally, I think it could be gone tomorrow. So if it is, what do I need to get done? You know, I almost take my brother's spirit with me as well, right? What would he want to do? And it drives me to kind of plot and plan. So that same commentary journey, let's say if we're in Manchester and our next game is in Notting, well, I know I can go via the Peak District do some, you know, fun stuff in between because just in case between Manchester and Nottingham, I don't make it back to London, I'm thinking let's get some fun in. That sounds quite pressurised. Yeah, in some ways. And I've had to calm down myself because when I think I first started, I was a bit on a manic, <laughs> a manic sort of chase for adventure. And then actually I now see it as realizing that work is important, but work's not everything. And actually more importantly is spending time with people you care about. So it's now evolved more into quality time with people doing something that's out of sort of just the routine nine to five. And I think I'll remember my experiences more than sometimes sort of just churning away emails. So yeah, I fit it in. Dan, you should join because we did do it with some of our colleagues, Phil Brown, Henry. We've got a drone now, so you can come in and join us. It comes from a deep place and I've, I've had to calm it down. But equally, I really enjoy the balance now of making sure that I always plan and plot adventure consistently in as well. There are so many ways to try to define you or to make sense of you. But one of the ones that I think 
I say to other people when they ask me what you're like, and I say that in our industry, the industry of broadcasting, and I mean that quite generally, both you know, in sport broadcasting and, and more generally broadcasting, women for many, many years were in, in slight terror of making mistakes, especially in sport. If you messed up as a woman on sport broadcasting, there was a massive pile on social media. Oh, crikey, yeah. Well, the, and the assumption, which is outrageous, was that you had no right to be talking about something that was in a man's domain. And the result of that was that a, a lot of incredibly good female broadcasters were safe, perhaps, but incredibly well-researched. So they would make sure they got nothing wrong. I've worked with you for, <laughs> I don't know, a decade. Yeah. And what I absolutely love about you is that you don't give a second thought to getting anything wrong. You, you are Ebony Rainford Brenton whenever the radio comes on. And that is a privilege that's given to male broadcasters all the time. When you start broadcasting as a man and you ask for any advice, another man will say to you, be yourself. Now, that's not a privilege that most women have allowed themselves to have. Did that just come completely naturally to you did you make that decision to be entirely yourself how did that happen I found it well first of all you know I, I've been a broadcaster in the world of cricket for over 10 years now um, and myself and Ishigu another fellow player we both moved into the broadcasting world but one thing I would say is the hard work had been done for us by some others we've got people like Eleanor Aldroyd um, who many would hear across the BBC Alison Mitchell um, Mel Jones so there were women who would have come in and unfortunately maybe had to take the hard end of it and we came in where it was still you know social media would pile on if you get something wrong and get back in the kitchens and all those sort of things would come through your twitter feed first of all i looked at those women when i came in and it gave me a sense of okay we're going to be all right because there are other women here who have done that you know when i talked about visibility before and seeing someone like yourself seeing some women in that spec gave me a sense of okay this is going to be all right and i went through i would say the first few years still feeling um, really insecure about like, am I going to say something? And the pylon comes on the social media and it did happen sometimes and you, you'd get it wrong. And I remember the moment that changed it for me. I won't say which commentator, but I was listening to the program. What I used to feel before is I have to get everything right. Otherwise you're going to get there. You have to get every stat right and every name pronounced right. You just have to, and you can overwhelm yourself. And I was listening to some of the commentators uh, who I've well established and been in for a long time. And I was just lying in the park. And I just remember thinking, do you know what? They're not worried at all. The stats, they gave hardly any stats in that period. When someone said, what do you think they should have done? They were like, I don't know. Like it was all kind of, and I just remember thinking they are comfortable in their skin and they're not having to prove at that moment. Yes, they're good enough to, when they need to bring it in, but they're not overwhelming themselves with having to prove who they are. And that just kind of was the moment I thought, you know what, I'm, I'm going to be more when I'm at, at, the, at the mic. I'm going to like enjoy it. You've got to research, you've got to know your stuff, but equally I don't need to overwhelm my brain with um, fearing that everything you say you're going to get judged. And um, I also got some good feedback as well from a couple of colleagues who say, have a couple of trusted people you value that you go to them to ask, how are you doing? Um, and whether you think you've done well. And those are the only people I started to go and seek solace from. So you, I almost started to find a place of, not that I didn't care, but it was more like, can I be more present when I'm on air? 
Can I enjoy it? Can I bring some knowledge, but also bring my personality and just relax a bit? And it took me, I would say, a couple of years. Um, but now I free flow and I say some random things, which you know, and I've been on air with you, and we've said some random things. You've been saying random things for the best part of 10 years, I believe. <laughs> it's coming out. Um, yeah, so, you know, there was a turning point. But it is kind of being able to be yourself and less worry about what others think of you. I know, and I'm sure you know, doing it in public medium isn't easy. But actually, once you start to get your head around, like, backing yourself and saying, well, look, look if it doesn't work, I'm not meant to be here, it becomes an easier process. So I do say random things and somehow I'm still getting hired. You're still there too. So <laughs> we're doing all right at the moment. Now, Ebony, when I checked out your Wikipedia page for the only purpose of actually getting the precise date of your debut for England, because that had actually passed me by, I saw to my, I say amazement, it's not really amazement nor surprise for that matter, that you're a master of neuro-linguistic programming. Does this explain why you are such a relentlessly positive person? Just so for those who don't know what uh, is shortened to NLP, in summary, it's the relationship between our thoughts, feelings and actions. Um, it's like a performance psychology. I learned it actually towards the end of my career. I wish if I'd have learned and, and done these skills earlier. As an athlete, you have to focus your brain, right? It's like, what do you want to achieve? What you, Where are you trying to go? What's your mission? But obviously, every time you go across the line, your emotions are getting in the way, fear, doubts, self-esteem, all those sort of things. And so you learn a lot of tools like anchoring and you know, there's a lot of different things that you can learn that can help you manage yourself and then get yourself super laser focused. I think sports people do it really well. Good business people do it. And once I started going down this path of NLP and I did the first training course, I became obsessed really. And it's something that I now, I think it almost becomes active in your life. I've, I've worked with others and, and helped people develop the skills. And there's so many simple things that can make a difference. So it's become now like a part of life. I almost forgot, that, not forget, but you forget that you do it because you just put so many things into life. But it definitely makes a difference to who I am and how I go about achieving things, how I word things, actually. Uh, I often have to sell, you know, getting people to put money over the line to invest in the charity. And you learn about the words that work best for our brain. You know, a really cool skill set that I've learned and can help others as well. So I think athletes use it, business people use it, and I definitely integrate those skills into my life. And you set yourself incredibly difficult challenges. I mean, to try to re-engage whole parts of the British community with a game that has been lost to them for the best part of 20 years must involve so many barriers, so many problems. Is that where NLP can really help? That's a really good question. How can it help? Instead of it being a problem, it becomes an opportunity, a sort of rewiring of the way the brain sees a barrier, perhaps. One of the biggest things I think in sport and getting to new communities is breaking down perceptions of what people believe, say, for example, cricket is. So if you go into a community that have been neglected, hasn't seen cricket maybe on TV, didn't have a family member that played it, you have to go in and break those perceptions down. And if you can understand how people think, feel, are wired, um, you can start to work with people and open up new pathways and see new things that are possible. And there are so many, our brains do three things, delete, distort, and generalize. And I think if you can get in and um, really just shake up the way people perceive things, then all of a sudden you can open up new experiences. So I, I definitely feel that's something that I talk to our team about. Our goal actually, first and foremost, is to open up 
young people's minds and teachers that are not used to these experiences and just um, think about a different way of, of seeing the world. Now, you mentioned this bucket list and it has over 80 items in it. You've ticked off 40 of them, which doesn't massively surprise me, but you've got many decades yet to run. Have you ticked them off on the basis that they were easy or they were expedient? And, and are there any out there that are just so out there that they're not going to happen, maybe? <laughs> I did structure them when I thought about it. So I have done this a lot of the easy ones. I did the quick ones and then uh, some of the ones that I'm getting in. The easy ones, it was simple things like I'd never had a curry on Brick Lane and I was like, how have I not done this? So that was just like, I have to, th- I don't want to die without doing that. So that was just like a simple thing. But then there are like, well, I'm in the phase at the moment of the seven wonders of the world. So I just came back from Petra and in Jordan and, and you know, got a chance to to explore that area, which was incredible. So that's a bit more adventure-based and then went into the desert in Wadi Rum. But I think there are two that are just like, I don't think they're ever going to happen, but I'm going to put it out there just in case anyone on this podcast can help. One is my idol, Oprah Winfrey. I want to meet her. I just don't think it's ever going to happen, but it's a dream. My friends have tried to make like social media posts and post to tweet to her and her team. It's never got through. But if anyone knows her and wants to help me out, that is uh, on my bucket list to meet her. And then the other is outer space. I'm thinking Elon is working hard at SpaceX and, and, and whatever else is going on. And I'm just thinking that even if I get like 79 on my bucket list done and that's the last one, it's possible if I have a decent stretch, I might be able to get there. So that is on the list you're definitely going to space, Ebony. But I have to also ask you, of the 40 odd you've done, hmm. are there any you thought, meh, don't know why I bothered? <laughs> well, there's one that I'm kind of struggling with. I, I put in learn Spanish. So there's a few learning ones. Ooh. Learning language is quite hard when you're busy and you're not a natural linguist. So I kind of start it, stop it, start it, stop it. And there's a part of me just wondering, is it one that I just give up? Do you know what? Not because it's not good to learn language. Just I need to either immerse myself or just sign it off and say it's not happening. So that's the only one that is kind of in the, I'm not sure what I'm going to do with that. I mean, I guess, Ebony, it depends very much on how much of a language you feel you've got to have learned before you've ticked it off. I mean, I'm I'm still learning English. <laughs> you are, and you're doing pretty well at it. <laughs> Ebony, you're too kind. You have been the most scintillating and magnificent guest. Thank you ever so much. Who knows where the next part of your journey is going to be, but I'm looking forward to seeing you in outer space at some point soon. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the latest episode of the Rathbones Inspired Minds podcast series with me, Daniel Norcross, and my fabulous guest, Ebony Rainford-Brent. You can listen to previous episodes of the series on all major podcast platforms. And if you enjoyed listening, don't forget to like or subscribe. To find out more about the series, just go to rathbones.com. The Rathbones Inspired Minds podcast series, now available on all podcast platforms and at rathbones.com.